All right, our uh, sermon text today is going to be Genesis 47, verses 1 through 6. And this sermon is entitled, Grace in the Land of Goshen. Verse 47, 1 says, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh, and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. I'll explain this again in case somebody clicks onto YouTube and hasn't heard this. Uh, these particular Joseph sermons are a large panorama of what's going on in human history. And so if you're watching one video, you really can't get a picture of what's going on, and it may even be a little bit confusing. But to understand everything that's happening here is showing us a picture of all of redemptive history in a nutshell with the life of Joseph, from the crucifixion of Christ, pictured by Joseph being cast into the pit, all the way through until the end of the Joseph cycle where he dies and then we come into the tribulation period where Israel is taken out at the Exodus, prefiguring the great tribulation of the last three years of the book of Revelation. So I want you to understand that, that if you haven't seen any of these other sermons, they may be a little bit confusing, but it all has a definite plan and a purpose from the mind of God. Now I want to say that some time ago I was talking with my brother, and he said something that I hadn't really thought of from our perspective. We who are a bit younger tend to take Israel for granted. They were there when we were born, and so like many other countries, they pop in and out of the news from time to time, but there doesn't really seem to be anything special about them. You know, a lot of countries came into existence around the time of uh, World War I and World War II, and other countries faded away. And so without the Bible, it's hard to see the miracle of Israel for what it really is. And the more years that pass, the less miraculous they must seem to all of the people of the world, because they ignore the Bible. Only when looking at history and comparing it with the Bible does Israel of today really shine so brightly. A very small piece of land and a minute number of people were all but forgotten for about 2,000 years. The land lay in ruins. The people were scattered in these little pockets of people that kept getting shoved from place to place, and the ancient tongue was all but gone. And yet suddenly things started to change. The word that established them also pointed to their return and to their blossoming and to their fruitfulness. And it told us that the dead language would in fact resurrect. Hebrew would again be on the lips of the people. And that's happened in just a couple generations before we were born. And as chance, or rather as divine favor would have it, proof of their ancient oracles, the writings that we would call the Old Testament, suddenly showed up in this dry and barren place called the Dead Sea one year before they were reestablished. The ancient words of the past were waiting for them as they arrived off of ships. God was calling them, and they were not listening. They still, for the most part, are not listening. And so, like Israel in Joseph's time, God will send a famine. It's going to be a very tough time on earth, but a portion of them will be saved through it by grace. The mystery of redemption is still alive and well in the world today. 
to those of us who read, study, and believe our Bibles, it is not a mystery at all. God speaks and we accept. But like creation itself, most of the world, including much of Israel, tries to take God right out of the picture. They ignore the signs, they ignore the wonders, and they ignore the miracle. They take no notice of what was written so long ago to show them what would happen in the future, and it is probably a not-too-distant future from right now. And they fail to open blind eyes and to lift them to the God who established them and who so faithfully carried them. It is a problem, though, with both Jew and Gentile, and it will lead down a very destructive path. But even there, God's grace will shine forth, especially for this cherished group of people, Israel. Our text verse today comes from Hosea chapter 2. It says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth and in the day when she came up from the land of Egypt. In order to be brought into the wilderness and up from the land of Egypt, Israel must first go into the land of Egypt. And this is where we are in the story today. Israel has arrived and they will be planted in the land of Goshen, the land of drawing near. There for the next 215 years, they will draw ever nearer to the day when they will be called out of that land. Considering that our nation is only 238 years old, to us, 215 years sounds like a very long time. But each year of Egypt was a year where they could grow and they could flourish. Eventually, like today, they would have a sufficient number of people to dwell in and to assume control again of the promised land. Nothing is arbitrary with God, and all things, even, even seemingly long delays in his plans, fit perfectly. As we read the Bible, we can learn that the long delays in our own life actually serve a very good purpose. When we get to the end of them, we can turn around and we can clearly see in hindsight that the delay was exactly what was needed for the circumstances. So don't fret over the delays, revel in them. In the process, he is taking good care of you and he's providing for you. We see this in today's story about Israel's arrival in Egypt. It is a story of God's gracious care for his chosen people. And so let's turn to this superior word again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three individual thoughts for you today. The first is five brothers before Pharaoh. This is verses one through three. Verse one says, Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. Joseph was finally reunited with his father and his brothers when he went down to meet them in Goshen. They stayed behind, and Joseph went back to Pharaoh with this happy report. They had completely removed themselves from Canaan, as is seen in the words, The flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come. The move is not a temporary one, but one that is rather expected to continue for at least the duration of the famine, but which will actually last for another 215 years. It is now the year 2,299 from the creation of the world, and they won't actually depart from Egypt until the year 2,514. Interestingly, it is now also 215 years since Abraham was given his original covenant promises from God back in Genesis chapter 12. At that time, there was also a famine so that he 
was it necessitated him leaving Canaan and entering Egypt. And that was, believe it or not, exactly 430 years after the flood of Noah. That visit to Egypt resulted in plagues upon Pharaoh's house. Exactly 430 years after that, the chosen line of Israel, who are now in Egypt, will be enslaved again by the Egyptians under Pharaoh's rule, and it will again result in plagues and their being forced out of the land. In both instances, their departure from Egypt results in carrying out the great wealth of Egypt with them. If you remember, Abraham, when he left, there were plagues on Pharaoh's house, and he was given all kinds of wealth as he left. Same thing is going to happen with Israel. Plagues are going to come upon Pharaoh and his land, and they're going to come out with all of the great wealth that they plunder from the Egyptians. As it says in Ecclesiastes, and as we learn is oh so true, both in the Bible and in history itself, that which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. The account now with Israel arriving in Egypt is, is exactly at the halfway point between these two things. The patterns of the Bible are rich, they're complex, and they are astonishing. How wonderful it is when we think about how God has woven every single thing together into this drama that we are participating in. During both times in Egypt, that of Abraham and that of Israel, it seemed that all these things had turned out for the worse for them. But the Lord had a hand on it each step of the way. And so here they are. They're in the land of Goshen. The name means drawing near or approaching. Two things which are drawing near in the future are being pictured. The first is the second half of the seven years of the tribulation period, which is seen in the book of Revelation. The second is the literal return of Jesus Christ. The name Goshen is being used to show that the end times are truly drawing near. Israel is back in the land, and they're being readied for their meeting with the Lord, just as Joseph and his family have now been reconciled here in Genesis. After these Genesis stories, the place Goshen in Egypt will only be mentioned one more time. That's at the time of the Exodus when the plagues come upon Pharaoh. Plagues which are actually parallel to and they prefigure the plagues of destruction which are mentioned in the book of Revelation. If you compare each plague with the plagues in Revelation, they go hand in hand with each other. Details in the Bibles repeat time and again, we know. And in the stories there is magnificent harmony. That gives us comfort that everything will happen as God says so and that we can trust every single word of Bible prophecy. Verse 2, And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. This verse right here was used by one very well-known pastor who I'm not going to name, but his analysis of this verse was to say that only some Christians are going to be raptured. The pastor who said this, and I want you to know this, he's one of the best speakers in all of Christianity today. If you turn on the TV and you hear him speaking, you think that this is a man of authority. But I will tell you something, without giving his name, I don't want to malign him personally, but he is one of the worst theologians that you will hear on TV. The notion of a saved believer not being taken out at the rapture violates the premise that we are saved by faith and then given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of our promised redemption. I don't want you to buy into that type of nonsense. It is bondage, and it is intended to scare believers into a state of submission to whatever the pastor dictates. In the case of this guy, he mandates tithing, which, as most people in this church here know, tithing is not a New Testament precept. You want to give 10%, go ahead, but you are not mandated 
in, in any way, shape, or form. But he mandates that. He's got these people scared into believing that if they're not good little Christians, they're not going out at the rapture. It's bondage. His analysis are often wrong on many important points, and they are filled with bad doctrine. He's got misleading statements. He's got incorrect assumptions. He is one of the greatest figures in Christian TV today, and yet I wouldn't recommend a single person watch him. I just want you to understand that when you're listening to orators on TV, a fine delivery and an authoritative speech is not an indication that somebody is teaching you properly. But unfortunately, most people want to be told what to believe. And when you do that, you are putting your hands in your life in the hands of a person rather than in the word of God. So be very careful when you do these type of things and when you perceive what you're seeing on TV as something that's authoritative. He's also, I want to say one more thing about him. He's also one of the worst enemies of Israel, and yet he's one of the greatest supporters of Israel. Now, how can that be? The reason why is because he supports Israel to the point that they believe that they are saved as Jews, regardless of whether they have made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ or not. And we just saw in the passage of Jesus' words from Palm Sunday, he's the only way. You cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ, and you cannot be saved apart from a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. So no wonder he completely botched his analysis of this passage. He came at it under the supposition that it is picturing those in the church, not those in Israel. But the entire panorama of these stories of Joseph's life is picturing Israel's coming reconciliation with Jesus, not the church. In this verse next, there is a most unusual phrasing of the Hebrew. It says, anashim, which means from the end or from the extremity of his brothers, he took five men. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that actually means. And there have been six prevalent views which have been introduced over the past 2,000 years of church history. I'm going to tell you what those six views are. One, he randomly took five of his brothers, just picked five and brought them. Two, he took five of the meanest looking because if he took the best looking, then Pharaoh would keep them for his own service and thus separate the family. Okay, the third option is he took five of the healthiest and best looking in hopes of impressing Pharaoh and thus making him look good in Pharaoh's eyes. Fourth, he took five of the youngest of them. Fifth, he took five of the oldest of them. And sixth, he took five from both extremes, making some of the oldest and some of the youngest. Okay. Using this exact same word and the same number of men later in the book of Judges, we read this. So the children of Dan sent five men of their family from their territory, men of valor, that word there, from Zorah and Eshtael to spy out the land and to search it. In Judges, it calls them men of valor. And so it was the best of the group who were selected. But whichever five it is of Joseph's brothers, they are not identified for a reason. We've seen again and again, anytime a name or a place is mentioned, God wants us to investigate why it is. This is because it is not important who the brothers are. It is irrelevant. All of the speculation makes no difference at all. It is the number five that is being focused on, not on who the five are. In the Bible, the numbers one through three, as we've seen in the past, speak of the first three mysteries, that of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then you have the number four, which speaks of the mystery of God's manifestation through creation. In other words, four is the number of the created order. All right. And then five speaks of the next revealed mystery, that of redemption. 
It is the people who are called out from mankind. They're redeemed and they're saved. And therefore, five is the number of grace. In picture then, these five are those who are spoken of in Zechariah chapter 13. During the tribulation period, most of Israel is going to die. I'm sorry to say it. Most people say they take a verse out of the New Testament that says, and all Israel will be saved. And they say, see, all of Israel is going to live. Speaking about all of Israel will be saved who make it through the tribulation. Most of Israel is not going to make it through the tri tribulation period. A remnant will be saved by grace. Here's what it says in Zechariah 13. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left in it. I will bring the one-third through the fire, will refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name, and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, the Lord is my God. The reason for the unusual wording of this verse where it says the men were taken from the end or the extremity of his brothers is because it is from the end or the extremity of those who are left at the end of the tribulation period who are being pictured here. They are those who are left alive by grace and who will be brought into the presence of the Lord represented by Pharaoh. The unusual Hebrew of this verse was used to show us a prophetic picture of the future. Verse 3, then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? This is exactly what Joseph said they would be asked before he took them to Pharaoh. As they are Joseph's brothers, he would want to know what their trade is so that he might find a position for them in Egypt as an honor to Joseph. Joseph knew Pharaoh well enough to know that this was coming, and he also knew it would be important to keep the family together. If any of the brothers were to get into Pharaoh's employ, employ and separate from the other brothers, the clans of Israel would no longer be a unified whole. So in order to make sure that didn't happen, he gave them advanced instructions in what to say, as verse 3 continues. And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. Exactly what Joseph instructed them to say, they said in reply to Pharaoh. They are keepers of the flocks, and it has been the way of their existence for many, many generations they said this because shepherds are considered an abomination to the Egyptians. And so he would keep them all isolated from the people and together as a clan. God ensured these things would come about in order to keep the people as a collective unit until it was time to bring them out of Egypt. Although the time frame is 215 years, it is no different than what God is going to do in the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. He will keep the people safe, and he will redeem them by great judgments on the world, just as he will bring great judgments on Egypt at the time of the Exodus. All these patterns keep repeating themselves to show us that God is in control of the entire span of history. I said this last week, that is why God put these patterns in here, is to say, I have shown in advance what's going to happen, and I fulfill it, and I've also shown you in advance that it repeats what has happened in the past, because I'm a God of order of logic, of discipline. And so that when you look into the pages of the Bible, you can say, I know that he's got my life under control because he has got the whole span of history within his control. It is, it's a marvelous way of showing us that he is a great God. That which has been is what will be. That which has been done is what will be done. God repeats the many details of history and there is nothing new under the sun. He does this for our benefit that we can trust he is in control. In the repetitions, there is a chance for us to believe that if he can do this in the world, then he can do it for our soul. 
In him there is no need to worry, and our every burden he does relieve. Our second thought today, we have come to dwell. This is verse 4. Verse 4 says, And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land. There is the hand of God written all over this verse. Seems like just kind of a passing verse, but let's read it again. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to dwell in the land, because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land. It is amazing how much is connected elsewhere to what the brothers now stand there and tell Pharaoh in a single sentence. First, they tell him that they have come to dwell in the land. Well, guess what? This was prophesied by the Lord almost 200 years earlier. In Genesis 15, it says this. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram. And behold, great horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Avram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Whether they realized it or not, their lives were being directed by a higher force, which had been used to bring them down to Egypt by a series of events which had been ongoing since the world was created. And along the way, God had provided hints as to the plan. The reason why they came to Egypt is explained next. It was because, as they said, your servants have no pastures for their flocks. Despite being the chosen people, they have subordinated themselves to Pharaoh by using the term, your servants. And this goes directly back to the dreams of Joseph from 22 years earlier. Remember he had a dream and his sheep stood up and all the sheep stood around his and bowed down to him? That's exactly what is being relayed here. His dreams, which he told them at that time, showed that they would bow to him, implying that they would be subordinated to him. Because he is second to Pharaoh, they have again subordinated themselves to Joseph in their words to Pharaoh. Every single detail, once again, has worked toward the next step of God's plan. Not a gust of wind, not a drop of rain has failed to be used to bring about his intentions. And I want to tell you that. We're in the process, once again, we started out many, many years ago with global cooling. We went on to the uh, fading ozone layer. We went on to acid rain. Then we went on to global warming. And now we've gone on to climate change. All of these things are being told that if we don't act, we are going to destroy the world. And God has told us that he is in control of all things. He tells us that directly in the Bible. This is a disbelief of God. It is a casting off of his authority. So we see these things in the Bible and we understand that God is in control. And then what do we do? We try to fix things like global warming. And what we do is we end up causing more problems. So the very things that we do in order to fix what God has done wrong are the things that are going to lead to the plagues at the time of Revelation. We, it is a self-inflicted wound is what's coming on the world because we have rejected God who is in control of the world. Finally, in the brothers' words, they explain why there are no pastures for their flocks. They say to Pharaoh, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. In saying this, they confirmed to Pharaoh exactly what Joseph prophesied concerning Pharaoh's dreams nine years earlier. There in Genesis chapter 41, it said these words, Indeed, seven years of great plenty will come throughout all the land of Egypt. 
But after them, seven years of famine will arise and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt and the famine will deplete the land. So the plenty will not be known in the land because the famine following for it will be very severe. And the dream was repeated to Pharaoh twice because the thing is established by God and God will shortly bring it to pass. They have used the exact same term for the harshness of the famine that Joseph used back then. It is the word chaved. It means heavy. Even the words within the text show us the overarching, the overarching hand of God on every detail of the story. And thus, if we apply these things to our own walk with God, we can see that every detail of what happens around us is used by him to meet his intended end. As a great example of this, I want to divert from the, the text for a minute, and I want to tell you how a portion of today's sermon came about. I had a friend that was staying with me. Actually, he's a friend that uh, my brother served with in the military many years ago. And uh, he uh, came down to Florida to stay with us, and he stayed at our place because we have more room. And uh, one morning, he came in to have some coffee, and that kept me from my normal routine. Normally, what I do is I go to work, and then I come back from work, and the very first thing I do is I practice my sermons out loud, and I do that seven days in a row. And while I'm practicing them, I'm making notes, and I'm you know, trying to get things to fit so it sounds like I'm speaking rather than writing. So he comes in, and he's getting some coffee, and I can't practice. I wasn't miffed about it at all, but I knew that if I kept trying to practice this sermon, it's just going to turn out you know, a waste of my time. So what did I do? I started typing this sermon right here. But while I'm typing this sermon, I couldn't focus because he'd say something and I'd say, yeah, and I get back to typing and he'd speak a little more and I get back to typing. And because of this, here I am typing, I was looking for something in the wrong place. I actually clicked on a sermon from 86 sermons ago and it took me to exactly what I needed concerning Abraham. It was something that I had completely forgotten and yet it was exactly what I needed for understanding today's passage and fitting it into a proper context. In other words, here I am, I've got this sermon that I'm preparing and God is directing me even by having somebody come in to have a cup of coffee. He is ensuring that everything unfolds as it should. There is nothing that God is not aware of. And if he can do this for a sermon that is heard by a handful of people here in Sarasota, Florida, and a few more that are interested on YouTube, then how much more attentive do you think he is concerning the really, really important issues of your own life? I mean, this is a great God, and he has every detail in perfect control. Just look at the hundreds and hundreds of years of planning to bring these sons of Israel into Pharaoh's presence to say something in one sentence in exactly what the Bible has hinted at again and again and again. And as an exceedingly great parallel, it was exactly the same word that used uh, the word chaved, which was used to bring about the move by Abraham to Egypt exactly 215 years earlier. The brother said, for the famine is severe in the land. In Genesis 12:10, this is what it said about the time of Abraham. Now there was a famine in the land and Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there for the famine was severe in the land. Both times the exact same phrase for the famine was severe in the land. What happened? Abraham came out, plagues on Pharaoh's house, great wealth, and the same thing is going to happen 215 years from now. The Bible is repeating itself again and again and again. And that's why every time I see a date 
or somebody's birthday or something in the Bible, I give you the date from the creation of the world. Because unless you know that, you're not going to see these patterns. But they are there, and they are to point to us that God is in control, that he has a plan for Israel, and that plan is going to be affected in our future, which is not far from us right now. This is amazing stuff. Verse 4 continues, Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Because of the great heavy famine which has taken away the pasture for the flocks in the higher lands of Canaan, they have come to Egypt where the lands still have some pastures left. And so, with this as their only option and their only way to continue as shepherds, they now ask for the right to dwell in Goshen. Surely the name Goshen, or drawing near, would be from this day forward a continual reminder that God's day of returning them to their own land was drawing near. The promise has been made and it would be fulfilled in due time. Time and again we see God's divine hand upon our lives and everything that happens around us. Even the rain or the lack of it upon the land is used to bring us to calling out for Jesus. Nothing is really out of control in our lives. Everything is directed by our Lord, the great God. Let us not be troubled as against us the world strives. He is surely in complete control of the path that we trod. Our third thought today, dwell in the best of the land, dwell in Goshen. This is verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, then Pharaoh said to Joseph, saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. Well, this seems unnecessary, doesn't it? It's kind of obvious, but it is not superfluous. Instead, it isn't repeating the obvious, like your father and your brothers have arrived. Rather, it is an acknowledgment of Joseph's position and his authority. It is to you that they have come. How could I turn down you concerning your request? That picture there is obvious. When Israel is reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, which is coming in our future, God will not withhold any good thing from them. The 84th Psalm perfectly reflects the sentiments right here. It says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and give glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Verse 6. The land of Egypt is before you. Egypt in Hebrew is the word Mitzrayim. It means double distress. In this place of double distress, Pharaoh offers to Joseph anything suitable to the task of caring for his family and his people. Someday the world will truly be in double distress without God and at war with each other. But there will be a group of God's people who have come to Jesus just as they have come to Joseph. And God will grant them a place where they can be protected, they can be nourished, and they can be continued through this time of distress. When God sees that they have come to Jesus Christ, they will again be his people, and he will so tend for them. Verse 6 continues, Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. While the world suffers through the famine, completely dependent on the grain of Pharaoh for survival, the Israelites are going to be in the best of the land. And guess what? It's going to be close enough to the Nile to allow water to filter into their land and to provide grass. While the Egyptians are going to stagnate, they're going to lose their property, and they're going to lose their possessions, the Bible tells us that the Israelites will not only keep their possessions, but they're going to grow and they're going to multiply exceedingly. Every detail is pre-planned by God from the very beginning to the very end. And again, in the future, because of their location, they will be close enough to the Nile so that a baby is going to be placed into a basket and floated down a river to an area near another pharaoh's house. And there he will be drawn out 
and he will become Israel's human redeemer and lawgiver, Moses. Nothing is left to chance. Everything is pre-planned, and your own destiny is as set in God's mind as it was for that of Joseph, Moses, and all of the people of Israel. It is more than amazing to contemplate. Verse 6 continues, Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. The royal decree is given. It is as much an exemption from taxes as one could get, and it is divinely directed welfare for the people of Israel. Soon, the continuing of the famine will leave the Egyptians with absolutely nothing left, but in Goshen there will be food and prosperity. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen, the land of drawing near. Every day that passes will draw Israel that much nearer to their deliverance and to a return to the promised land. And as for those who are in Jesus Christ, every single day draws us one day closer to our own deliverance. We are pilgrims. We are living in the land of Goshen. And every day we're getting closer to Jesus' return. And so we should live our lives in that manner, as the book of Hebrews says in what is an amazing, an amazing parallel to what Goshen pictures. It says here, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching or the day drawing near. That is exactly what we're seeing here. It's, it's just wonderful how God has woven this beautiful word together for our benefit so that we can see his love for each one of us who have called on Jesus Christ. Verse 6 finishes with these words. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. These final words for the day show that despite their isolated location, which is in Goshen, Pharaoh would still like to honor Joseph by offering any of his brother's work based on their ability. The New King James Version translate them, these people as competent men. But it's a word, Khalil, which is widely translated. So once in a while I do this for you so you get an extra squiggle on your brain. I checked all these other versions that I read, and here are their translations of this word, Khalil. Special ability, special skills, able men, capable men, men of activity, especially skilled, qualified, men of valor, men of ability, industrious men. The word Khalil indicates strength, and it comes from a word Khul, which means to twist. The idea is that of adding strength by twisting ropes together. It is to such notable and resilient people as this that he offers care of his own personal flocks. And these certainly would also be down there in the land of Goshen where the pastures were the best. The picture here should be obvious. Though the Gentile church has been raptured out, there is what is called in the book of Revelation the great white multitude. They are Gentiles who have come to Christ since the starting of the tribulation period. It is these people whom the sealed 144,000 of Israel will evangelize. In fact, in Exodus 12, verse 38, we read these words. A mixed multitude, meaning Jew and Gentile, went up with them also, and flocks and herds, a great deal of livestock. It's not only going to be Jews, but Gentiles as well, who will be carried through the tribulation and into the millennial kingdom. And it is to these shepherds, authorized by God, that Peter writes these words. This is from his first letter, the fifth chapter. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, 
not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. These competent herdsmen certainly did their job well in the past. When Israel entered Egypt, there were 70 recorded names. When they leave, they will be numbered at 603,550 fighting-aged men, along with women, children, and so on. The flocks will flourish, the people will multiply, and God will be set for a great deliverance of his chosen people. And the chosen shepherds of the tribulation period are going to do an equally noteworthy job. Revelation 7 verse 9 says this. It says that there will be a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Yep, God is in the business of doing things on a grand scale. He can start with one, and he can end up with more than the sand on the seashore. Never underestimate the great and glorious work of God. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly. And God will amaze with the results that ensue. So shepherd not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Nor act as lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock each and every day. And when the chief shepherd appears, this thing he will do. He will grant you the crown of glory that does not fade away. We here today serve an awesome God, the awesome God. He has entrusted us with life, with time, and with place. Your life is not your own, but it was given to you to glorify him. The time you were born was selected as the most advantageous for the person that you are. No other time in history would have worked out as well for you. And the place you are is the place that you belong. From your birth to your parents, in the place that you came to be, all the way until your dying day, God selected the place where your feet would step in anticipation of you using that placement to bring glory and honor to him. So take every advantage of every moment. Time slips by so fast that it will be gone before you know it. You know what? My 50th birthday is this year, and it feels like I'm, I'm 18 still. It's just amazing how quickly time passes. And remember this also as you go. The cross of Jesus Christ handled our sin problem. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proved that our sin problem was handled. If you've never resolved this problem, which so desperately needs to be fixed before you can stand justified before the holy God, I want you to give me just another minute to explain to you once again how you can be reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us, if anybody denies that, then they're denying the obvious because everybody has sinned. Just pick up the Bible and read any passage from the Old Testament and you're going to see a reflection of it in yourself. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sinned. But it goes on to say that the gift of God the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. All of these stories with all of their intricate detail, everything has been pointing to the coming of one who would undo what Adam did wrong. He came and he lived that perfect life exactly as the Bible said he would. The Gospels record it to show us that he did that thing. And then he gave his life up on a cross so that we could be reconciled to God. His shed blood, his perfect innocent blood, never sinning, 
is what takes away our sin. And our unrighteousness, it's attached to that cross when he gives us his righteousness. It's this beautiful trade. And then it says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's the thing that God would ask you to do is to just simply say, I can't save myself. I want Jesus Christ to do it for me. And he proved that Jesus is who he said he was and who he is by coming out of the grave. If the wages of sin is death and Jesus Christ came out of the grave, then he obviously had no sin of his own. So not only is your sin transferred to the cross, it's washed away in the eternal abyss. It's gone forever. Salvation is eternal and it is a gift of God. So please call on Jesus Christ today. Allow him to save you and to reconcile you to his father and to lead you to paths of righteousness for his name's sake for all eternity. Our closing verse today comes from Acts chapter 20. It's the 27th and 28th verse. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Think of the brothers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Next week, we're going to go out of the book of Genesis for a week. We're going to go to Philippians 3, verses 4 through 11. It's to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection. That'll be our Resurrection Day sermon. I'll tell you this before we ever poem and close today, that the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things both for you and through you. Our poem is called Grace in the Land of Goshen. Then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My fathers and my brothers as well, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess, and maybe even a stray gazelle, have come from the land of Canaan, and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. Then he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh, just these five without the others. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. It is our vocation. And they said to Pharaoh during the talks, We have come to dwell in the land, because your servants have no pasture for the flocks, for the severe famine in Canaan is also at hand. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen, to us that would be so swell. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying what he already knew, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land they have come to. Let them in the land of Goshen excel. And if you know any competent men among them, then over my livestock make them chief herdsmen. Joseph ensured that Israel would survive during the years of famine that still lay ahead. In those years they would be kept alive and to live without fear or dread. God has also ensured that in the future Israel will be kept safe through the great tribulation. This is the wondrous grace of which the Bible does tell, abundantly poured out on the undeserving nation. In the same way, God has given to us such abundant grace when he sent to Calvary's cross his beloved son, Jesus. In this act, we are restored to his favorable face, and in it, eternal life has been granted to us. Thank you, O God, for your marvelous love. Thank you for the gift of your own precious son. Because of him, someday we will be in the heavens above when this earthly life is finally done. Hallelujah and amen. All right. Communion comes, as most of you know, from the uh, book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there in chapter 11, Paul wrote these words to us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, 
that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, A blessing over it. He would have said these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech haolam borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bring, the creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment upon himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So let's take a moment to reflect on the week behind us. in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is that? Body of the blood. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to meet here today. Thank you for the beautiful spring weather you've given us, and uh, the people that are sick, the several people that are sick, or those that couldn't come because they're traveling, or for whatever other reason that they weren't here today, we would pray that you would keep them safely, keep them uh, healthy, restore them to health, and uh, also those that are suffering from trials and troubles and uh, heartbreaks, we would pray for them as well, Lord. And Lord, we do pray for our leaders in this nation. We pray for your people, Israel. 
And we just pray that you will uh, be an ever-present help in our lives in the week ahead. Help us to keep our eyes focused on you, our hearts directed towards you, and help us just to remember that your word is sufficient to lead and guide us. Help us to remain in it and uh, just open it up to us in ways that we can understand it and apply it to our own lives. We thank you, Lord. We love you. We praise you. You are great and you are glorious. We praise you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.